Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, and verses 44 to 47. He said to them, how, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophet and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. I know that we're still probably feeling a bit cold. Probably still feeling a bit cold from the rain. Um, But it's good to see all of our faces this morning. Thank you for coming. Um, I know that, like Pastor Femi was saying, many of us probably still wanted to sleep in. I felt that way when the rain started. And um, except that I realized I had to preach this morning. I didn't know whether to be happy or not, but um, it's good to see all of our faces this morning. Thank you, Damlola, for the reading. And happy Children's Day. It's on, it's on, it's on. And happy Children's Day to all um, children. And if there's any teenager who is rolling their eyes right now, realize that your daddy and mommy, if they have grand, if you have grandparents, right, your daddy and mommy are still children as well. So um, happy Children's Day, you know that was to all of us. So what we've been doing is this series called The Lord's Voice. And basically what we've been trying to show is that God's voice is God's word. And because God's voice is God's word, God's voice is special. And um, we began... Um, about three weeks ago now with Uncle Yemi showing us from Psalm 19 how special God's word is. And then, <laughs> he's smiling, I called him Uncle Yemi. Um, and then the, the following week, Francis showed us from Second um, Peter how God's word is authoritative. That because we now have a more sure word of prophecy, that we should hold fast to what, we, what we've heard, what we've heard in the word of the Lord. And then Dami showed us powerfully last week as well that God's word is transformative from um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that God's word is able to equip us for every good work. And so today we come to the end of the series, and we've called it The Lord's Voice is Supreme. Um, I'm sure that a couple of us have seen these memes that go around on social media, kids these days. 
Um, so I have my own kids these days story. Um, so I grew up, of course you can tell, I grew up before the internet era. I grew up before everybody had DSTVs and GoTVs. Um, and I didn't grow up in Lagos. And so, in fact, by the time I was growing up, very few people had what we called satellite dish. It wasn't even, it wasn't even um, DSC, it was satellite dish. It was tons of Arabic stations that nobody, <laughs> nobody understood, and then CNN. That was all there was to it. And very few people had that. So the rest of us who were below that social level made do with people who told us stories or what we saw on TV. I remember coming to Lagos and um, those days when I was like six, seven, and realizing that they had 24-hour TV in Lagos. I was like, what? 24 hours? It sounded like utopia. But anyway, so the rest of us would make do with people who either had or people who would tell us what they saw on TV. And so um, there was this guy, his name was Ahmed when I was in primary two. And Ahmed would regale us with stories of Chakin Chan. If you know who Chakin Chan is, for a primary two year, for a primary two year, um, for a primary two student, I, I didn't know who Chakin Chan was. All I know that Chakin Chan could fight and could make noise. Ahmed would always tell us stories of Chakin Chan. Of course, I realized that it's Jackie Chan, not Chakin Chan. Um, and so, for the rest of us who didn't have that, we had, we had, okay, so I'll just mention the name of the state, Quara TV. Quara TV is TV there. And so Quara TV will show us, I'm sure they probably didn't have programs, so Quara TV will show us Indian movies. Um, and so there was this particular Indian movie, I did not know the title, I did not know the storyline, I did not know anything. All I knew was that there was somebody called Tufan, and Tufan had a girlfriend who they were always singing together. I had no idea what the story was. I had no idea, maybe some of us know the, the movie. I only found out subsequently that that Tufan was actually was actually Amitabh Bakshan, the, the, the Indian actor. I did not know that at the time. I still did not know what the storyline was until while preparing for the seminar, I was like, ah, what's the storyline of this of, of this movie? I then found out that it was involved somebody who had a son. I still can't remember well. But the point is, I knew there was a movie I knew that there was a guy called Tufan, but if you ask me what the story was about, I had no idea. And there are many of us, right, when it comes to the Bible, that you can identify, yeah, um, I've heard about David, I've heard about Goliath, I've heard about the crossing of the Red Sea, and all these lovely things. But what's the Bible about? And the cross, she across the Red Sea, Shah. What's the center point of the story? Um, I don't know. But Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. How does this relate, you know, with what happens in the end? I have no idea. And so what we'll be looking at this morning is that if the Bible is a tapestry, a work of art, it is the story of Jesus that is the singular thread that holds it together. Or for some of us who, who are physics and science nerds, that Jesus is both the centripetal point of the story, 
on which all things converge, but he is also the centrifugal point of the story from which all things emerge. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we join with the psalmist this morning to echo that the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And now we ask that you would help us to hear powerfully the Lord's voice. Help us to know powerfully the Lord's voice. And help us to love powerfully the Lord's voice. In Jesus' name we pray. So we're introduced to this story about two gentlemen, or uh, two people actually, we only know the name of one, who live in a town called um, Emmaus, um, heading to a town called Emmaus from Jerusalem. Um, but to understand it better, we have to actually backtrack. So starting from verse 13, if you, if you just look there with me, Luke tells us about certain um, Luke had already told about certain women who went to the tomb of Jesus. They went there out of good conscience. They wanted to anoint him, anoint his body. And then they get there and they see that the stone is actually rolled away. And then they find two people there. So the, the, the women are, con are confused, but they find two people there who are angels, as, as we find out. And then the angels now tell them, don't be afraid, but clearly the, the ladies were, the ladies had no clue what was going on. And so the angels now started reminding them, if you look at verse 7, um, sorry, verse 13, the angels had already started reminding them about what was going on, what Jesus had said. And it was at that point that they suddenly remembered, huh, Jesus said something. And how, and then they run back to the disciples to give the good news to the disciples. But then we are told that the disciples actually looked at them like these people were saying nonsense. Now, if, imagine that you had actually lived with Jesus or you lived with anybody who gave you an idea that, oh, at, certain, at, at a certain time in my life, something will happen. And then um, you guys should not be afraid. This thing will happen. I will rise from the dead and all of that. You would expect, and then the person kept saying over, and over and over again. You expect that somewhere they'll just catch the idea. Somewhere it will stay in their minds. But these ladies had no clue until they were reminded. And it's as if Luke is showing us that the fact that you have contact with something does not mean that you comprehend it. The fact that you are regularly in touch with something does not mean that you understand or know it. But then if we, if we, if we are quick to dismiss these ladies that these people are serious. They, they have very low IQs. Luke then tells us that somebody called Peter, one of, one of the apostles, actually um, one-ups the, the rest of the disciples. The rest of the disciples look at the women like these women are saying nonsense. These women are saying stupid things. But Peter actually gets up and runs to the tomb. And we're told in verse 12 that bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. He heard that something had happened. He ran there, but then he was still wondering to himself, what's going on here? 
and we are shown again that the fact that you put effort does not mean that it will yield results. There are a lot of people who have, because of their exposure to, um, to, to Christianity or to the Bible, they put in a lot of effort to do stuff, but there's no results, commensurate results emerging. And so then we're now introduced to this last group, um, Cleopas and his friend. Cleopas and his friend very clearly were one of the disciples, or were part of the disciples, rather. Um, in, in chapter 10, we are told about a group of 72 people who Jesus actually sends out on mission. And so it's very likely that Cleopas and his friend were, were part of this group. And so they also had heard, because we are told that it was that very same day um, when, when, Peter, when the women heard, when Peter went there, that these people set out on their journey. So they had also heard, but then they were probably discouraged, wondering, this doesn't make any sense. This person who we've invested our life with, this person who we've trusted um, our lives to, we don't understand what's going on. And so they walked away, walking casually, leaving, um, discouraged and dejected. And then we're told that somebody comes to them on the road and asks them, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? Because apparently it wasn't just a casual chit-chat, like, hey, my guy, and all that. This was, if, if you read um, verse 15 in other translations, it says they were discussing and arguing. So this was a very passionate discussion about, I don't know what's going on here. And so this person asked them, this person who we obviously know is Jesus, this person asked them, guys, what are you talking about? And if you look at verses 19 to 24, they actually proceed to give Jesus the facts of all that's going on. So then they proceed to tell about the person that there's this great prophet, Jesus Christ, and what he has done and how he was sent by God. They proceeded to talk about the event that he had been crucified. They proceeded to talk about the duration that he had been dead for three days. And then they proceeded to talk about the miracle that his tomb is empty, and yet they still could not put it together. It will be grave. It will be a grave mistake for us to just quickly gloss over this, because what Luke is telling us is like somebody who you're asking, "What is two plus two? And person is just looking. No idea. You say, "Okay, okay." Um, if you bring two counters, like they used to do for us in primary school, you put two here, and you put another two here, count it. The guy counts. One, two, one, two. And he still cannot put it together. And so Luke shows us that the fact that you have knowledge does not mean that you have understanding. He showed us with the women that the fact that you have contact does not mean that you comprehend. He showed us with Peter that the fact that you put in effort does not mean that there will be a commensurate result. But then he shows us with Cleopas and his friend that the fact that you have knowledge of all that's going on does not mean that you have understanding. And so it is with many of us today as Christians. We've been in church for many years and we still cannot put together what exactly does the Bible mean? What exactly is the storyline of the Bible? And so many of us resort to cherry picking. Man, Psalms, I understand. 
Um, Proverbs, wise sayings, I like. Ruth, romantic story, I love it. The Gospels, Jesus sayings, I like it. So we'll take all of those. Malachi, mm -mm. except for maybe the part where if you're a pastor and you want to talk about tithing, you talk about it. Or if you're somebody who wants to talk about divorce, you talk about it. The rest, Micah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, nah. And certainly not Ezekiel. What in God's name is Ezekiel talking about? Brothers and sisters, that was what Cleopas and his friend were doing. And we might be quick to say, oh, well, ah, but Cleopas and, and his friend are different because, well, at least they had Jesus. But we know very clearly that our reaction will have been no different from Cleopas and his friend because it's the same thing today. How does Jesus rebuke them? He goes on to say, how foolish you are. If, as Dami showed us last week from 2 Timothy 3.15, that you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, no wonder Cleopas and his friend were rebuked for being foolish. There is a certain kind of knowledge that leads to foolishness. There is a certain kind of knowledge that leads to understanding. And so what are some of the approaches we take today? Number one, there are four of them I have here, continuing um, from last week, Adami showed us. Number one, we, we take the choose your adventure approach. How many of us remember the R.L. Stein Goosebumps books? Or any book where, so the, the idea is there's a book that does not have one ending. So you are reading, you get to page 10, and then it says, if you want to see this person dead, jump to page 100. If you want to see, on that same page 10, if you want to see how this person survives, go to page 50. And then throughout the book like that, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you just keep going. You choose your adventure. You choose what you like. Or maybe we do like Thomas Jefferson, who had a Bible, and he just clipped out, he clipped out the parts he didn't like. And he had a very little part. I just, I'm a, this one I understand. This is what I like. Or another approach. I call it IITB approach. What's IITB? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible approach. So people do this with um, passages like Deuteronomy 22, 5. I'm sure if you're a lady who wears trousers and you're Nigerian, you probably heard this. It goes like this. A woman is not to wear male clothing, and a man is not to wear a woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. And then they tell you, don't wear trousers. If you wear trousers, you are going to hell. You're like, ah, mommy, no, this is female trousers, not male trousers. Say, no, it's in the Bible. <laughs> but then this approach runs into a problem because in verse 12, it says, make tassels on the four corners of the garment you wear. And you're like, mommy, I, I can't see any tassels on the, on the corner of your garment. You say, I don't know, but 22 verse 5 is in the Bible. <laughs> don't wear trousers. Or another approach, Puma approach. So this is an approach where the person just, just jump from one text. You jump, jump, and land in another text. I used to do this. So you, you, you go to a, verse, a passage like Proverbs 31 verse, um, verses 4 to 5, where 
King Lemuel's mother says to him, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, to drink wine, nor for strong men to be given to too much wine. Say, you see? But you now jump to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. The Bible says that God has made us kings and priests. You see? You are a king. Why are you drinking alcohol? Why are you drinking wine? Because it says here that it's not for kings to drink too much wine. And so you just jump here and there, landing wherever you want with whatever you want. Or the last one that all of us do every now and then, the Dr. Phil approach. This is the inspirational approach where every obstacle in your life is Goliath. <laughs> so you take 1 Samuel chapter 17. You say, you are David. Take the stone and conquer Goliath. Nothing can stop you, my brother. Nothing can stop you, my sister. Except the problem is that for many of us, Goliath has already defeated us many times. If your Goliath is an exam you've been trying to write for the last five years, jam, guess what? You are not David. Goliath has defeated you. The second problem with this approach is that David is not commended to us as our example. If you follow the story along, you see that David himself um, does not please God all the time. And so the story must mean more than just you conquering every Goliath in your life. Brothers and sisters, we have confusion because we do not have understanding. This is what Jesus shows Cleopas and his friend. You may not be able to put together all the facts, or you may even be able to put together all the facts and still have no understanding. So what does Jesus do for them? He gives them enlightened hearts. And so we'll go to point two. Enlightened hearts. We see this in verses 25 to 27. First, we sh first, we've seen that confused hearts. We've seen confused hearts. Um, Cleopas and his friend, Peter and the disciples, um, the women who went to the tomb. And now we're looking at enlightened hearts. We see this in verses 25 to 27. Jesus comes to these people. He doesn't just leave them the way they are. And aren't we just glad that Jesus keeps coming to us? That even though many of us are confused, even though we have no idea about scripture or how to merge it together, Jesus keeps coming to us. But how does he help them? Verse 25 to 27 says, He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And again, verses 44 to 45. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So how does, this, how does Jesus help these people? We see how he helps them by what he teaches them. Twice in these verses that I just read, Jesus says all the things about him in the law of Moses, the prophets, 
and the Psalms. These three things are the Hebrew scripture. Um, I have a slide that I'll just show us very briefly. If you could just put it up. So the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law is the first five books, which they call um, the Torah. The prophets is both some books of history as well as um, prophetic books. And then the Psalms, or the writings. Now, you might be wondering, ah, no, Emmanuel is the writings, not the Psalms. Well, so in, in Hebrew literature, the Psalms, the Psalms is obviously the longest part of the writings. And so for them, a part of the whole is as good as uh, the whole itself. So that's why Jesus keeps using that word, the Psalms, the Psalms. And so you, if you look very carefully, you see that even though some of them are treated as um, whole books, so like Samuel instead of first and second Samuel, or Kings instead of first and second Kings, you see that actually this is our Old Testament. So basically what Jesus does for them is to take them to the Old Testament to, to show that these things point to me. I am the point of the Old Testament. I may be saying, ah, Emmanuel, yeah. You're just making these things up. So let's, let's go. Let's, let's look at this. The law of Moses, the law. The law shows us that we are lawbreakers who cannot approach God on our own terms. We need an alien righteousness to make us worthy to appear before God. So in Genesis chapter 3, God, before Genesis chapter 3, um, God had created the Garden of Eden. He had placed man in it. And then the man and the woman willfully disobeyed God. And so in Genesis 3, God curses them. God sends them out of the garden. But if you pay attention to the story, you notice that it says that they were clothed. Something was killed for them. And, they were, and that thing had skin that clothed them. You might be wondering, hmm, what's that? If you go further, you see that in chapter 4, Abel brings an offering before God which was a lamb that was also slaughtered. And you keep following that story. You see the same thing with Noah. You see the same thing with Abraham. You see the same thing at the Exodus, where God says that you should kill a lamb and put the door on the, blood, on, on, on the doorposts. And then you see the same thing in Leviticus, where God eventually inaugurates the Day of Atonement, that an animal will be slaughtered every time. And then that keeps going on until you get to John, where John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then ultimately on the cross, Jesus is killed in our stead, offered as the Lamb who truly takes away the sins of the world. So the law shows us that we need an alien righteousness. We cannot approach God on our own terms. The prophets, both made up of history and prophetic books show us that there is no truly good king apart from God. And the prophetic books point us towards God's judgment of people's sins and his promise to give forgiveness and deliverance. So, um, you've probably heard about Saul who was the bad king. Everybody's agreed that Saul was a bad king. He ruled for 40 years and eventually um, he got booted out. Let's just put it that way. And so in Saul's stead was David, who was anointed as replacement. And um, some of us are, if you're a Christian, for, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with the fact that David was a man after God's own heart. Except that if you look at the story very well, you see that David married many wives, 
David killed somebody whose wife he wrongly slept with. And then in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David disobeys God by being proud and counting the soldiers. God had told them, don't count soldiers. And so David does that and, and counts soldiers. So David cannot be, cannot be the true king that God has promised. If you go further down, you see that there's David's son, who is called Solomon, comes in after David. But Solomon marries a thousand wives. And Solomon himself is led astray, disobeying God. And from there, everything goes south. Solomon's son comes up. The kingdom is divided. And then there are two lines of kings. There are the kings of the southern kingdom and the kings of the northern kingdom. The kings of the northern kingdom really don't follow God. They hardly... I'm not sure there's any one of them who followed God. But then the kings of the southern kingdom, there were some good ones, there were some bad ones. But ultimately, both kingdoms and both kings displeased God until they went to exile. And then you're wondering, where is the king that God has promised? And yet in Hosea and in Daniel and all these um, prophetic books, we are told about God's love for his people, God redeeming his people, God actively buying back his people. And so where do the prophetic books lead us? They show us ultimately that there is only one true king who pleases God, who does all that God requires, and there is only one person who fulfills God's requirement for righteousness, and the person is Jesus. So the prophetic books as well point us very clearly to Jesus. And then the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, um, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah show us that there is no one who truly loves God or wants God or lives for God or is wise enough to discern God's will, the Proverbs, the Psalms. And the only person who ever does that is Jesus. So Psalm 15, for instance. The psalmist there is writing, who will ascend God's holy hill? Who will be able to climb God's mountain? He who has clean hearts and a pure heart. And if you are very honest with yourself, just look at that text and be like, that's not me, man. That's not me. But there is actually someone who fits that criteria, and his name is Jesus. Or Psalm 51, after David had slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband, he writes, create in me a clean heart, O God. And there are many of us, every time we fall or go back to look at pornography or go back to do the things that we, we promise God that we never do, we love this place because it offers us so much comfort and so much hope. But guess what? There is actually one person who has never prayed this prayer, Jesus. Or the book of Ruth, where we find Ruth as... Um, as, as a foreigner who comes to a land and is about to lose everything without hope. And Boaz comes and buys her back. Guess what? There's somebody who redeems us. His name is Jesus. Or the book of Job, where we find someone who is very much in pain, and yet he's crying out to his redeemer who identifies with him. Guess what? There's only one person who identifies with us in our pain. His name is Jesus. And so I like the way somebody called Tim Keller puts this thing. It's a bit long, but please bear with me. It's really powerful. Jesus is the true and better Adam 
who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing where he went or how he was going to get there. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God and say, Now we know you love us, because you did not withhold your son from us, your only son, whom you truly love. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betray him and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it for themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk living an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save us. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who went out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bed. The Bible is not really about you. It's about him. You can say that in men again. And so Jesus Christ very clearly is the point of the Bible. In John chapter 5 verse 39, we are told, you study the scriptures expecting them to give you life. But you bypass the points. I am the points of the scriptures. The, the Bible exists not just to make us feel good about ourselves, but to show us who God is. And so we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things, all things, all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. You see, the Bible is more like an autobiography than a cookbook or an atlas. Many of us consult it because we, like a cookbook, how, 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 do I do, how do I do this thing? How, do I, how can I do this thing? Or like an atlas, where can I get direction for my life? 
But the Bible is more like an autobiography, telling us the story of one person and what he has done in the world. But see, because it is about him, we are rest assured that he is with us as we journey through life. Confusion happens to us because we're like people who are relaying coming to America to somebody who has never watched it. And then all you are talking about is the thief who came in at the bar, Samuel L. Jackson. I am just talking about Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson. And then somebody comes and says, ah, yes, I know that was in the story. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is about Hakim who left his kingdom to go to America to find a bride. Yeah. Or we are like people who have gone to Terraculture to watch a play. And then there's somebody, I know, yeah, people who do this part don't like it. It's called an extra. What in God's name is an extra? I don't want to be an extra. I want to be the main cast. And so they say, Madam, please come. Come and just, all you are doing in this play is to serve a cup of water. Cup of water, oh, cup of water. Say yes. And so you take the cup of water there. Then you drop it. And you're parading the set. Parading the set. Parading the set. What will the director say? I say cup of water. Get out of there. Because the play is not about you. It's about the main cast. And in the same way that the story is not really about us, it's about Jesus. And so, like Cleopas and his friend, we only get enlightened hearts when we recognize that the Bible is really about Jesus. He's the supreme voice of the supreme Lord. He is the supreme voice of the supreme Lord. I might be wondering, ah, man. How can, I, how can I do this? So here are just three useful practices. Now, there are a lot. There are a lot of them. I've seen seven. I've seen six from different people. But just three useful ones. Number one, read the passage in context. Just read the whole chapter or read the whole book. Very often, you'll find that what you are thinking is the point of the story is not actually the point of the story. Just read the passage in context. Number two, Study how the New Testament uses or quotes or interprets the Old Testament. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, at, at the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry, Matthew says that a light, when he, when, he, when he talked about Jesus' proceeding, he talked about, he now quotes Isaiah chapter 9, that a light has dawned on the people of Zebulon, the people living in a foreign land. And if you are familiar with that story, you're like, no. That's not what Isaiah 9 is about. Because Isaiah was actually talking about somebody, a king who was about to be born. But you see, Matthew recognizes that there is no true light unless that light comes and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And there are many like that in the New Testament. So just read how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. And number three, identify themes of promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. What does that mean? So, for instance, in the book of Acts, if you're familiar with the Bible story, you've, you've heard that the day of Pentecost arrived, and Peter goes out and he tells his people that what you are seeing here is actually a fulfillment of what the prophet prophesied of old. And he goes on to quote Joel chapter 2. So, these three practices, there are many more, but these three would really help us in identifying the story of the Bible 
and in seeing how we can carefully interpret it. But lest we get too carried away, because there are many of us that like deep things. What does, Jesus doesn't just leave them there. His whole point is not just that they get enlightened. He wants something deeper. And so let's go to point number three. Burning hearts. We've seen confusion and why confusion happens. We've seen that the answer to confusion is enlightenment. But now we're going to look at the fact that enlightenment is not the goal. Enlightenment is not the end. Mere enlightenment is not the end. There's something more. And so in verses 25 to 27 and, 20, and 45 to 47, Jesus says to them, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Verse 46 again. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And what was the centerpiece of this exposition by Jesus? It was the suffering of the Messiah. Now, if, if you've been in church for a long time, that doesn't, probably doesn't make any sense to you. But here's what it really means. It is an oxymoron. It's like talking about the living dead or talking about a short, tall man. Common sense tells us that those two things cannot happen at the same time. You cannot call yourself a Messiah, someone who is anointed, someone who is a deliverer, and yet talk about some, and yet say that you are someone who suffers. But yet that is how Jesus Christ describes himself. Why? Because at the centerpiece of God's deliverance is the suffering of Jesus Christ. We said earlier that if the Bible is a tapestry, Jesus is the single thread that holds it together. But you cannot understand Jesus without understanding his suffering. And what was the place of his suffering? The cross. You see, on the cross, God makes the loudest statement that he wants to be known by people who confuse him. He wants to be known by people who are confused about him. People who, even though they've come in contact with him, they have no comprehension about him. Even though they've put in efforts, the efforts are not yielding results. And even though they have knowledge, their knowledge is not leading to understanding. You see, he wants to be known by people who doubt him, like Cleopas and his friend. People who are discouraged, like Cleopas and his friend. He wants to be known by people like Peter, who run to him, but yet do not see him. You see, on the cross, God comes to us in Christ and gives us the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to his word. Because of the cross, the word made flesh takes the word made text to give us the word made life. Because of the cross, the word made flesh, Jesus, takes the word made text, the Bible, to give us the word of life. Jesus is the priest who is the sacrifice. Jesus is the judge who takes the punishment. Jesus is the lion who is the lamb. Jesus is the king who is a servant. Jesus is the prince of peace who comes with a sword. Jesus is the beginning who is the end. Jesus is the one to whom the future is but a memory. 
Jesus is the man who is God. And so at the end of this exposition, Cleopas and his friend run back and say, wow. Sorry, before they run back, they, they said, wow, did not our hearts burn within us? You see, because the point of knowing about Jesus is not just knowing about Jesus. The point of knowing about Jesus is that something happens so deeply in your heart that you go out on mission. And so we see Cleopas and his friend. They say, did not our hearts burn within us? But then the next thing they did was to make a complete detour, a complete 180. They were headed to Emmaus. But now all of a sudden, the people who left Jerusalem are heading back to Jerusalem because something happened to them on the road to Emmaus. And that is what God does for us on the cross. I invite us this morning to marvel at this loud statement of God, Jesus Christ. Revealed to us specially. Revealed to us authoritatively. Revealed to us as one who can transform us. But revealed to us as the one who is supreme, who is the end of all things. And so Paul can boldly say that to, it is to him and through him and for, all, and for him that all things exist. Brothers and sisters, the point of an enlightened heart is a burning heart that goes out on mission. And yet the burning in our hearts cannot happen without recognizing this supreme voice that has come for us on the cross. And so I invite us this morning to bow our heads. As we approach the Lord's table, where we'll be led by our lead pastor in a short while. But just to confuse, just to thank God for his mercy and his grace to us, coming to us in our confusion, coming to us where we had no idea what the story is really about, but coming to us to show us that he is the supreme voice of God and he is the one who speaks loudest to us. And so, Lord Jesus, we worship over your word this morning and thank you, Lord, for how you've revealed yourself to us, especially in the Holy Scriptures, but supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. We ask, oh God, Jesus, that this will be precious to us. And as we gaze on Christ, we'll go out on mission for the sake and glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus. Love people, love Lagos.